Hey, I'm Zach. I'm the lead pastor here at Restore. Thanks so much for checking out this week's video. I hope that it encourages you. I hope that it inspires you. And I hope that it causes you to dive deeper into God's word. I also hope that you have some community around you that you can talk through some of these things with. And I wanna remind you that we are in the middle of our year in the story, which is really this deep dive into God's great story and our place in it. If you'd like more information about that or about our community here at Restore, you can get that all on our website at restoreaustin.org. We really would love to see you soon. Thanks. I'm excited about it, too. What is a tape? Great question. <laughs> the summer mixtape series I'm kicking off today is very specifically named. I think it was probably 10 years old when I made my first mixtape, and I remember it so vividly. You see, I didn't have all the fancy stuff you needed to make a real mixtape. I just had an off-brand Walkman that had a record button on it. And so I had to make my first mixtape by listening to the radio or even finding songs on movies that I loved and then getting to them as fast as I can and hitting record and putting it up to the, you know, and then it'd record on the tape. You know what I'm talking about? My favorite song on my first ever mixtape I made when I was 10 years old was one I recorded off of the credits of Mighty Ducks 2. <laughs> I brought it with me so that you all can really feel just how magical <laughs> Time after time, the most sentence, but committed no crime. And then the stage, I pray of you. I've had my shares and hate me my days, but I come through. guys heard, but did you hear that fade from the Mighty Ducks kids singing to the Queen? Man, that is art. Just like pure and beautiful art right there. Now, it's important to say that that was the only Mighty Ducks singing Queen song on that mixtape. It was the only one that made it onto that mixtape. Probably that was because that's the only Mighty Ducks Queen mashup that's ever existed. But it's also because 
that's not what a mixtape is, right? A mixtape is not a bunch of different songs by the same artist. That's an album. A mixtape is a bunch of different songs by different artists. So that's exactly what this series is. It's six different messages by six different teachers. And the idea is that each of us that teach will be teaching something that we are incredibly passionate about. So this morning, I'm kicking it off, and then there are five more people coming in. Here they are. I showed this earlier, but in case you weren't in here, here is the five faces of the people. Do we have that one? (laughs) Thank you, Bob. All right, it sounded like we found it. Hey, there it is right there. Y'all give Bob a round of applause. Bob is a man back there, killing it on projection. So next week is Zach, and then we have Camille Hall-Ortega, and then our very own Matt Gonzalez. Whoop, get it. Yeah, and then Wayne, and then Cat Armstrong to be closing it down. So those are the five weeks, and I said this earlier, but I'm so excited about these next five weeks that I'm actually going to be here all five of these weeks listening to these incredible speakers and introducing them because I'm so excited to hear what they have to talk about. But honestly, I feel a little bit weird being a part of Summer Mixtape because I teach here almost every week. So the idea of finding this like one topic that I'm super passionate about is a little bit more difficult, right? Because I'm super passionate about the things that I talk about with you guys each and every week. But the more I thought about it, the more I talked with a few good friends, the more that I knew exactly what I really wanted to talk about. So I'm going to say a quick prayer, and then we're going to dive into week one of Summer Mixtape. God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the ability to just gather together, God, and and, and open um, the Bible, God, and, and ask it questions and learn from it, God. Thank you that your spirit is here among us, leading us, teaching us, guiding us. Thank you that we're united around the resurrection of Jesus, God. I, I pray that as we talk about how all three of those things kind of work together, that you would open our minds, open our hearts. God, help us set aside any preconceived notions or any of the biases we all carry, God. Help us to to hear what you're trying to say to us. Not not what I'm trying to say and not what we're trying to hear, but really to hear and to take in what you have for us this morning. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So I've never started a message like this by saying this in the first three and a half years of our church, but I'm going to say it now. So over the next half hour or so, I'm going to be talking specifically to Christians. Specifically to Christians. Every single other week in the history of our church, our messages are tailored to both those who consider themselves Christian and those who do not. You'll often hear us explain a Bible passage or a concept followed with something like, if you consider yourself a Christian, here's what this might mean for you. If you do not consider yourself a Christian, here's what it might mean for you. But that's not what I'm going to do this morning. I'm going to talk to Christians only. Why? Because I believe that we need to make a fundamental shift in the way we as Christians talk about our faith and live it out. I believe we need to make a fundamental shift in how we do that. And furthermore, I believe if we don't make that shift, we will continue to see the church in America drastically decline and eventually go the way of churches, most churches in Europe. Except in Europe, the churches have big, beautiful buildings, and so they've been preserved even if no one attends them. But in America, you see, we'll continue to see more churches close, more church buildings sold, more church structures knocked down to make way for shopping centers and malls and restaurants. And I believe that's where we're going if we do not fundamentally change the way we talk about and live out our faith. So if you're here this morning and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, I hope that you'll stay and listen anyway. Because I think so much of what you find off-putting about Christianity is not actually what our faith is about. 
I think it's something that someone else has put on top or added in addition to our faith. And if you're a Christian, as I said in the prayer, I want you to try to put preconceived notions and biases beside and really listen for what God wants to teach you this morning because I think God wants to use the truth that he wants to share this morning to set some of us free, both personally, in our own life, in our own relationship with Christ, and as we interact with the world around us. And I almost never say this part either, but I would love for you to take notes this morning if you are so inclined. So that can be on your phone, on the back of all the, uh, the welcome card, connection card thing. There's a place for notes or pens in your seats. If you want to do that, if you're so inclined, I would love for you to do that. Because it's going to be, uh, we're going to kind of roll through this in more of an educational type of a way. So that's what we're doing this morning. Y'all ready? Okay, here's where I want to begin. Christianity is not a text-based faith. Christianity is not a text-based faith. Now, a text-based faith is exactly what it sounds like, a faith tradition based on a religious text. Here's how that usually goes, okay? A god or a set of gods hands down a set of teachings to a human person or a semi-divine person. And then that person writes all of it down, and then a religion is born based on the writings that were given by the god to the person. Does that make sense? That's a text-based faith. There are lots of text-based faiths. Judaism, right? God gives Moses the Torah on Mount Sinai. It eventually expands into the entire uh, first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, right? Or Hinduism. The Vedas were given to the human sages by the god Brahma, who is kind of the all-encompassing god. Like So Hinduism has lots and lots of gods. They believe they're all kind of part of one being, which is Brahma. And Brahma gives the Vedas to these human sages, and that governs Hinduism. Islam. Muhammad is given the Quran from Allah, writes it all down. Islam is born. Even Wiccanism has the Book of Shadows, written by a guy named Gerald Gardner in the late 1940s under the inspiration of the moon goddess and the horned god. These are text-based faiths. In fact, I think you can fairly easily make the case that every other major world religion is a text-based faith, with the exception of one, Christianity. Every major world religion is a text-based faith given by God to a person, written down, founded on that text. Every other one except Christianity. You see, Christianity is not a text-based faith. Christianity is an event-based faith. This morning we're going to unpack what I mean by that. Christianity is not a text-based faith. It is an event-based faith. And that event is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Christianity was founded by Jesus and launched when he rose from the dead. They were not Christians before Jesus rose from the dead, right? Jesus brought it, he named it, he talked about it, he inaugurated it for his three years of ministry, and then when he died and was buried and rose again, he gave the Holy Spirit to a group of people and he launched the Christian faith. How many of you ever heard, I want you to raise your hand, how many of you have ever heard that Christians are people of the book? You ever heard that terminology? We're people of the book, right? Okay, most of us. People of the book. You may not know that phrase actually originates with the prophet Muhammad. And it's first found in the Quran in reference to kind of all the other major monotheistic religions. So monotheism, if you didn't know that, it's it's kind of the belief that there is a single preeminent deity, right? So monotheism literally means one God. So the Quran says that Muslims, Jews, and Christians are people of the book. Muhammad wrote that down. 
uh, supposedly under the inspiration of Allah, he wrote that down. And he called us and him and Jews people of the book. Muslims with the Quran, Jews with the Old Testament, sometimes called the Tanakh, and Christians with the Bible. But it is patently untrue. We are not people of the Bible. We are people of the cross. We are not people of the Bible. We are people of the cross. We do not have a text-based faith. We have an event-based faith, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's why we aren't called little Bibles, right? We're called little Christs. That's what Christian literally means, little Christ. We're not called little Bibles. We're called little Christs. Now, I didn't make any of this up. It's been taught and passed down to me from professors and authors and pastors and theologians from all different backgrounds and denominations. I think I've been taught it most succinctly from an Atlanta-based pastor named Andy Stanley, so you'll hear me quote from him a few times today, but even he'll tell you he didn't come up with any of this. This has been the central message of Christianity for 2,000-plus years. But for reasons I cannot comprehend, we have shifted away from it. For reasons I cannot comprehend, we have tried to make our faith a text-based faith over the last couple of centuries. And I believe we've done so with major consequences. And as I said a moment ago, if we don't shift the way we talk about and live out our faith back to the centrality of the person and work of Jesus Christ, we are destined to see Christianity in America continue to be rejected and continue to fade from relevance. So, why did we turn our event-based faith into a text-based faith? It's a fair question. When and how did this happen, you might be asking. Because for most of us, since this shift happened a couple of centuries ago, it's all we have ever known. So the question then is, when did this happen? How does it happen? Why did it happen? And answering that question could be an entire message in and of itself. But I do want to give you just a minute or two of historical background on this, okay? So in the 18th century, something called the Age of Enlightenment began. And during this time, the Western world specifically began using reason and logic as the most important factors in understanding the world around us. And that includes religion and faith. Out of this, something you may be familiar with called the scientific method was born. And it rose to prominence as the primary way to acquire and assess knowledge. Acquire knowledge, really, and assess what is real, what is true. Scientific method goes something like this. Question, hypothesis, testing, analysis. You formulate a question, you ask a question, you make a hypothesis. I think this is how the question is going to be answered. You do a test to see how that question is answered, and then you do analysis to see how the test went, right? Does that make sense? That's the scientific method. We learned that in school. The method is repeated over and over and over again until the most reasonable and logical answer is made clear. So in the 19th century, the Enlightenment and scientific method influences begin intersecting on a large scale with religion, and specifically with Christianity, since it was the most prominent Western religion. Questions begin to arise about the historical accuracy, possible inconsistencies, the scientific validity, and even the authorship of the Bible. And because of our inability as modern Westerners to discuss nuance without dividing into polarized camps. Not if you know what I'm talking about. We can't do that. We can't, we're, we're unable to do that. I don't know why, but we're unable to do that. Because of our inability to discuss nuance without dividing into polarized camps, most people did what? Divided into polarized camps. With one side claiming that every word in the Bible is literal and without error and perfect. 
and the other side claiming that the Bible is made up and antiquated and useless. Those are the camps. So for the last couple of centuries, and in particularly over the last few decades, people have felt forced to choose between those two camps. This means a choice between every word in the Bible being literal and without error, or the Bible being made up and useless. And guess which of the two is easier to prove using the scientific method? If those are your only two options, it is significantly easier to make the case that the Bible is made up and useless rather than every word in it being literal and without error. It's super easy to do. When every word is taken at literal face value, it's easy to pull out a Bible verse and make them contradict each other. Here's my favorite, Proverbs 26, 4 and 5. It says, do not answer a fool according to his folly, or you yourself will be just like him. Then it says, answer a fool according to his folly, or he will be wise in his own eyes. Those are back to back. Those are right next to each other. I didn't make that up. That's the Bible. Okay, I put it on the screen, you look it up, you don't believe me. Proverbs 26, 4 and 5. Don't answer a fool in his folly. Do answer a fool in his folly. Use the scientific method, we assess this verse. Does the Bible have a contradiction in it? Yes, there it is. It's right there, it's on the screen. Seems pretty blatant, doesn't it? Now let me caveat by saying I truly believe that when we understand the Bible correctly, That means looking at genre and context and authorship and audience and and all of the things that go into the Bible. When I think we we understand it correctly, these seeming contradictions actually make sense. For instance, we have to understand the genre of Proverbs. Proverbs is called wisdom literature. And in wisdom literature, ethics are often based on the situation that you are in. So stay with me. Meaning, sometimes it's wise to answer a fool in his folly. Right? Sometimes it makes sense to answer a fool in his folly. Maybe it's your friend, and your friend is being dumb and saying stupid things, and it's going to get them in trouble or get them hurt or get them embarrassed, and so you go and you correct them. You go and you say, hey, you're being a fool. Right? Here's why. Stop. But other times, it's unwise to answer a fool in his folly, like feeding an internet troll who's just trying to get attention, who's just bugging you about something. Right? It's, it's, it's wiser to just let that go, to not answer. So both of these things can be true. Right? But only if we understand them in their context and with their genre. But this means understanding that the Bible is not all literal. It's not all to be taken at face value. It means understanding nuance and not caving to the pressure to fall into the one of two camps that I mentioned earlier. Ultimately, y'all, it means not asking the Bible to be something it's not. That's what it means. We need to stop asking the Bible to be something it's not. That's the mistake we've been making over the last couple of centuries. We have asked the Bible, every verse from Genesis to Revelation, to be the foundation of our faith. And that's a huge problem because, don't miss this, Christianity, if Christianity is built on the foundation that every word of the Bible is literal and to be taken at face value, our entire faith begins to crumble very quickly. You with me? If the foundation of our faith is that every word from Genesis to Revelation in the Bible is literal and to be taken at face value and just to be read black and white, and that's what it says on the page, so that's what it means. The Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it. If that's the foundation of the Christian faith, it falls apart real fast. Real fast. But thankfully, it is not. Because we do not have a text-based faith. We have an event-based faith. How do you know that, Zach? You may be asking. Good question. Well, I know we have an event-based faith 
not a text-based faith, because the Bible tells me so. (laughs) I know we have an event-based faith, not a text-based faith, because the Bible tells me so. Let's look at the very beginning of John's account of Jesus' life. John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word. Notice the capitalization. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. John 1, 1 through 5. Then, in verse 14, it says, And the word was written down on scrolls and given to us. Is that what it says? Does anybody know? That's not what it says. John 1, 14 does not say the word was written down on scrolls and given to us. Here's what it says. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Woo! We just... Caveat for a second. That's better. Okay? It's better. What I'm telling you is better. It's better that the word was not just written down on text and given to us like every other text-based faith and religion. It's better that when God wanted to tell us something, he put on skin and he came to us. That's better. So much better. When God wanted to give his word to the world he created, he didn't write a book. He became a person. When God wanted to give his word to the world he created, he did not write a book. He became a person. Jesus is God in the flesh, God with skin on. This preeminent truth should change the way we read and relate to the Bible. It should. It has to. It must. I love how Canadian pastor Bruxy Cavey says it. We read Scripture not as our end point destination. We open up our Bibles to have a supernatural rendezvous with the Word of God who is Jesus. He becomes the center of our biblical exegesis so that we read all of Scripture with Jesus in mind. Now, if you aren't familiar with that phrase, biblical exegesis, it simply means the way we interpret and understand the Bible. So to put it in another way, Jesus is the lens through which we interpret the Bible. He is the filter by which we understand the Bible. So that makes this true. If there is something in the Bible that seemingly contradicts the words and works of Jesus, we have misread, misunderstood, or misapplied it. It's that simple. If we read something in the Bible that contradicts God in the flesh, who he is, what he said, then we have misunderstood, misread, or misapplied that part of the Bible. And if this is making you uncomfortable, consider that I did not come up with it. Jesus came up with this. Six different times in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says some version of, you have heard it said, but I tell you. You have heard it said, but I tell you. Every time he says, you have heard it said, he quotes the Old Testament. And then he says, but I tell you, and he changes it, okay? He says, you have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. You have been taught from the Old Testament that you're supposed to love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I'm telling you something different. In the Old Testament, Elijah called fire down from heaven on his enemies. But in the New Testament, Jesus says, when someone slaps your face, turn the other cheek to them. Those are incompatible. That's not controversial. Those two things are incompatible. Calling fire down on your enemies and loving your enemies. Killing every man, woman, and child in Jericho and turning the other cheek. Those things are incompatible. So should we hate our enemies and call fire down upon them, or should we love them and turn the other cheek? I'm going to do the one Jesus told me to do, because he is the filter through which we understand the Bible. And if something in the Bible 
seemingly contradicts the words or works of Jesus, we have misunderstood, misread, or misapplied it. That's it. He's God. We have an event-based faith. We do not have a text-based faith. Because the Bible is not what we're following. Jesus is what we're following. Because I'm not a little Bible. I'm a little Christ. I love, it's another Andy Stanley quote I love on this subject. The fact that someone chose to publish the Old Covenant with the New Covenant in genuine leather binding doesn't mean we should treat them or apply them the same way. The Bible is all God's word to somebody. But it's not all God's word to everybody. Notice the lowercase word. And you should be happy about that. Most of us wouldn't have made it past adolescence had the Old Covenant been given equal status with the New Covenant. I'm not suggesting the two Testaments aren't equally inspired. My point is they aren't equally applicable. One could read through the entire Old Testament every year and never know Jesus ever existed. Think about that. You read through the Old Testament every day for a year, never know Jesus existed. One more point on this from pastor and author Brian Zond. Jesus is the true and living, capital W, word of God. Jesus is what the law and the prophets point toward and bow to. He means bow to because Jesus changes them. Jesus says, you have heard it said in the law this, but I'm telling you this. They don't just point to him, they bow to him. If they come into conflict, they go down, Jesus goes up. Jesus is what the Old Testament was trying to say, but could never fully articulate. Jesus is the perfect word of God in the form of a human life. God couldn't say all he wanted to say in the form of a book, so he said it in the form of Jesus. Jesus is what God has to say. I love that quote. Jesus is what God has to say. Jesus is the fullest revelation we have of who God is, not the Bible. The Bible is not the fullest revelation we have. From Genesis to Revelation, not the fullest revelation we have of who God is. Jesus is the fullest revelation we have, the the most perfect picture we have of who God is and what he is like. The Bible is like the North Star. This helps you think about it like this. The Bible is like the North Star that the Magi followed, the wise men, you were reading about at Christmas, right? To find Jesus after he was born in Bethlehem. It points us It guides us to Jesus. The Bible is like John the Baptist, who before Jesus came, said, there's one coming who's even better than I am. And then when he came, he said, look, here is the Lamb of God who has come to take away the sins of the world. The Bible is like John the Baptist, announcing the coming of Jesus. The Bible points us to Jesus. And then, and this is absolutely huge, please, please don't miss this. When we place our faith in Jesus, he gives us his Bible. No. His spirit. When we place our faith in Jesus, he doesn't give us a Bible and say, here, follow this now. This is everything. Do away with anything that that brought you here and the the experience that you had and all that stuff. Just, Just follow this. This is what you need. He gives us his spirit. He himself, the Holy Spirit, to come and live and indwell us. The Bible says that his spirit becomes one with us in our spirit. 1 Corinthians 6, 17. Whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. And when this happens, the Holy Spirit becomes our guide. It is the one, the spirit of Jesus in us is the one that we listen to and are led by. See, because Christians believe in something called the Trinity. Raise your hand if you've heard of the Trinity. We believe in something called the Trinity. The Trinity is one God three persons. For many Christians, our Trinity has become Father, Son, and Holy Bible. That's not what the Trinity is. The Trinity is Father, God, Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit. 
The Bible is not God. The Bible points us to God. We are not people of the book. We are people of the cross. We do not have a text-based faith. We have an event-based faith, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we place our faith in him. He gives us his spirit by which to understand the scripture that he's given us. If you read the scripture without leaning in to the, the guidance and the leading of the Holy Spirit, I would rather you not read the Bible, honestly. I wouldn't. Because there are so many things in there that are so easy to pull out and to misinterpret and to misconstrue and to make say whatever you want it to say. If you want to justify war with the Bible, you can do it. If you want to justify slavery with the Bible, you can do it. If you want to justify genocide with the Bible, you can do it. It is only by reading it through the filter of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit that we can understand what it is trying to say to us. This is not controversial. This has been the orthodox understanding of the Christian faith since Jesus rose from the dead. It was accepted and taught by virtually every Christian on the planet until a couple of centuries ago. We must shift back to talking about and living out Christianity as an event-based faith built on the foundation of the person and work of Jesus Christ. We have elevated the book above the main character. And the results have been disastrous. People are leaving the faith in droves because we've completely misrepresented what it means to be a Christian and asked the Bible to be something it's not. Here's what I believe to be true about Christianity in America today. The vast majority of people walking away from Christianity in America are not rejecting the person and work of Jesus Christ. They are rejecting someone's interpretation of the Bible. It's the vast majority of people. The vast majority of people walking away from Christianity in America today are not rejecting the person and work of Jesus Christ. They are rejecting someone's interpretation of the Bible. Because listen, here's what we've started doing over the last couple of centuries, and it's had terrible consequences. As we've shifted to making Christianity a text-based faith, particularly a text-based faith centered on the inerrancy and literal interpretation of the Bible, we've started saying things like this. A Christian believes the Bible is inspired by God. Totally. I'm with you. I'm in on that. That's awesome. Okay, if you're in on that, then a Christian believes the Bible is without error. Well, yeah, depends on what you mean exactly by that, as we've talked about, but I think I can get behind that. A Christian believes that everything in the Bible is literally true. And because in our post-enlightenment, Western scientific method-based society, true means literally true, that means... The Bible says Jonah lived inside the whale for three days. So if you believe that story is allegorical, you aren't really a Christian. Because a Christian believes the Bible is inspired by God. And a Christian believes the Bible is without error. And a Christian believes the Bible is literally true. Or the Bible says Noah's flood covered the whole earth. So if you believe that it was only a local area that flooded, you aren't really a Christian. The Bible says that God told the Israelites to kill every man, woman, and child, and animal in Jericho and burn the entire city to the ground. So if you believe that God is against war, you aren't really a Christian. The Bible says women shouldn't speak in church. In fact, it says that they should have their heads covered at all times. So if you believe a woman can stand on a stage and preach about Jesus, you aren't really a Christian. The Bible says the earth is 6,000 years old. So if you believe in evolution or you believe the earth is actually millions or billions of years old, you aren't really a Christian. This is what we have done. 
with our faith. By making literal and inerrant Bible the foundation of our faith, we've elevated a plethora of things to the level of primary importance that is reserved only for the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's what we've done. And the results of this are catastrophic because here's what happens. Think about it like this. A young Christian takes a freshman biology class. This is a kid who was raised in church her whole life. She believes the Bible. She believes the things she's taught. She believes in this kind of text-based version of our faith. She takes a freshman biology class in college, and she becomes convinced that the earth is millions of years old. And because she has been told her whole life that, quote, a Christian doesn't believe the earth is more than 6,000 years old, she thinks, well, I guess I'm not a Christian anymore. That happens. It's happened to some of you because I know your stories, because I've listened to them. Or someone who isn't a Christian is considering the Christian faith, but they heard about Jesus for the first time from a female preacher. And then they heard someone say, a Christian doesn't believe a woman can preach in church, and they think to themselves, well, I guess I can't be a Christian after all. That, my friends, is the cost of the shift we've made and making Christianity a text-based faith. It makes me so angry. It makes me so angry, and it makes me so sad. Because there are people in this room, there are people watching online, there are people in my life and your life who have walked away from the faith, the faith that was supposed to be built around the person and work of Jesus because we have built it around all this other crap. That understanding should bring us to our knees in mourning and repentance. We must shift back. We must shift back. It's too important. Because if we don't, y'all, it will only get worse. So how do we shift? Here's how I want to end it. Here's how Andy says it. We must tether the faith of this and the next generation to the event of the resurrection rather than the inspiration, infallibility, and authority of the Bible. The anchor of our faith, the thing that we place our hope in is the person and work of Jesus, not in every single verse from Genesis to Revelation in the Bible. And lest you think me or Andy or anyone else is making this up and spreading some heresy, here's another guy who says the same things. You study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. Jesus said that. I did not make this up. Do you know who he said it to? The religious leaders of the time. The ones who had memorized the whole Old Testament. The ones who were anchoring their faith to a text. Jesus said, don't anchor your faith in the scriptures. They aren't where life is. They just point to me. Anchor your faith in me. And for anyone who would argue, well, we only know about the resurrection of Jesus because of the Bible, I would simply say, I love you, but you are wrong. We don't only know about Jesus and his resurrection because of the Bible. In fact, you've got it backwards. We know about the Bible because of the resurrection of Jesus. You think you would ever heard the apostle Paul Read any of his letters he wrote to these remote churches in the Near East in the first century? Think you'd ever read any of those? Think you'd have ever been taught about Noah and the ark and the flood and all these Hebrew Jewish 
stories growing up without the resurrection of Jesus? No. The resurrection of Jesus is what brings all of this together. Jesus was a fake rabbi. I mean fake rabbi because he had no training. He was a teacher. He was like a street evangelist, teacher. He was a fake rabbi born to a scandalized family in a crummy little town called Nazareth, where when they heard where he was from, they said, can anything good come from there? He never wrote any books. He never composed any songs. He never traveled more than 100 miles from his birthplace. So how is he the founder of the largest religion in the world? It's not because of some book that was compiled hundreds of years after his death. It's because he said, I'm going to die and I'm going to come back to life. And then he freaking did it. He did it. He said, I'm about to die and I'm going to come back to life. And then he did it. It's unbelievable. Here's the timeline if you aren't familiar with it. Jesus lived for about 33 years. He did a ton of incredible things like forgiving people's sins and healing people and and miracles. Then he died. Then three days later, he rose from the dead. Then he appeared to a few hundred people over a few different days as this risen Savior. Then he gave the Holy Spirit to his followers. Then a few days later, after he'd given the Holy Spirit to his fathers, a guy named Peter gets up and he preaches the very first sermon about the resurrection of Jesus. And 3,000 people choose to believe and choose to follow it. And they receive the Holy Spirit. And the church is born. Then, almost 400 years later, the Bible as we have it is put together. We have an event-based faith. The resurrection of Jesus Christ. Christianity did not begin when someone read something. Christianity began when someone saw something, the resurrected Jesus. And in those 400 years in between the resurrection of Jesus and the Bible being put together, Christianity experienced the largest exponential growth of any religion in the history of the world. And they did so without a centralized text. The largest growth any religion has ever experienced at any time in the history of the world happened between the resurrection and the Bible being put together. We don't have a text-based faith. We have an event-based faith. The Bible did not create Christianity. Christianity created the Bible. The Old Testament cannot stand on its own. Revelation cannot stand on its own. Genesis cannot stand on its own. The letters of Paul cannot stand on their own. Without the person and work of Jesus Christ, Everything breaks down. Paul himself, author of most of the New Testament, knew this. He said, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. It is the only thing that matters. Think about it like this. You don't put gold in a safe to make it valuable, right? It's not something unvaluable, and then you put it in a safe, and now it suddenly becomes valuable. The gold is already valuable. You put it in a safe because it's valuable. The resurrection of Jesus isn't of ultimate importance because it's in the Bible. The resurrection of Jesus was put in the Bible because it was already of ultimate importance. And people wanted to talk about it. It said we cannot help but talk about and write about the things that we have seen and heard, not the things that we read in a book. We must shift back to anchoring our faith to the person and work of Jesus Christ. Here's how we do that. First, this means understanding the Bible for what it is, not asking it to be something it's not. I believe the Bible is inspired by God. I believe that it is worthwhile for teaching us about who he is and what it looks like to follow Jesus. But the Bible is not God. It is not the fourth member of the Trinity. The Bible is the North Star leading us to Jesus. It is John the Baptist proclaiming that Jesus is coming and pointing him out when he arrives. 
The Bible is a safe that preserves the good news of the resurrection. As Jesus himself said, the scriptures don't contain life. They just tell you about me. That's the first thing. Stop asking the Bible to be something it's not. Stop putting that on other people. Number two, it also means following the example of Jesus by understanding that he is the lens through which we interpret every part of the Bible. He is the filter by which we understand the Bible. If something in the Bible seemingly contradicts the person or words or works of Jesus Christ, we have misunderstood, misapplied, or misread it. He is the lens. Third, it means understanding the Holy Spirit for what it really is. God who lives inside of us and leads us to the life he wants us to live, interprets the scriptures for us, gives us strength and courage and peace when we need it in the midst of this broken world. That's third. And lastly, it means we need to stop defending the faith, especially when it means fighting for a literal and errorless Bible. We don't need to defend the faith. The good news of Jesus Christ needs no defense. But even though we don't need to defend the faith, we may be asked to explain why we believe what we believe. And I believe we should absolutely do that. But not by attempting to explain every verse or passage in the Bible. I believe that if you are trusting Jesus and being led by the Holy Spirit, you will experience all the things that Jesus promises. You will experience hope and peace and unconditional love and more. And when you experience those things, people around you will notice. And chances are they'll ask you something like, how do you have peace in a situation like this? How do you have hope? When you just experience this terrible thing, how do you love that person even though they're such a jerk? And when they ask those things, tell them. Tell them why. I love how Peter describes this process in his letters at the end of the New Testament. He says, in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. So how do we do that? How do we share the hope we have after we've made the shift back to anchoring our faith in Jesus. Simply two things. First thing is tell your story. Second thing is tell Jesus' story. Tell your story. Tell how you came to faith. Tell about the people God's placed in your life. Tell about the leading of the Holy Spirit. Tell about the peace that you have. Tell about your church family. Tell about the love you've received from God and from others. Tell your story. It's the most compelling apologetic you have. Your story. Number two, tell Jesus' story. Tell about how he came. Tell about how God saw the broken world and he just couldn't stand his children hurting anymore and so he put on flesh and he came down. Tell about how he was born with no fanfare, no big kings, no big parades. He was born in a manger, animals around him. Tell about how his stepfather, Joseph, could have very easily had his mother executed because she got pregnant before they got married. Tell about the scandal that he was born into. And tell about how he grew up and he spent the last three years of his life traveling around this area, healing people, turning water into wine and making the best parties ever, spending time with people that no one else wanted to spend time with, tax collectors, prostitutes, Tell him about how he challenged the religious leaders of the time. And tell him about how he said, I'm going to die for you. And then three days later, I'm going to come back. Tell him about that. And tell him about how he came back. And how eyewitnesses saw it. How they told all their friends. 
how people came to faith and how when they did, they got the Holy Spirit and they did these miraculous things that nobody could explain except by the power of God. Tell how his followers were emboldened to stand up to the very people who killed Jesus and say, I don't care what you do to me. I cannot help but speak about what I've seen and heard. Tell about how a fake rabbi from a scandalized family from a no-name, crummy Jewish town became the leader, founder of the largest religion in the world. Tell them about how it makes no sense without the resurrection. Tell Jesus' story. And when they ask questions about the Bible that we talked about earlier, feel free to say, I don't really know how that works. I don't really know what that particular thing means, but I know if anything in the Bible seems to contradict the words and works of Jesus, we have misread, misunderstood, or misapplied it. That's all I know. If you do this, I promise you will see people experience the grace, hope, and love of Jesus in ways you've never seen it before. If we do this as the American church, we will see people embrace Christianity instead of walking away. We will see more churches begin to open than close. We will see a movement toward Jesus like we have not seen since the founding of the church in Acts. I truly believe that because I've already seen it happen as I've started to share this event-based faith with people, including many of you. I want to end with one last quote from Andy that captures just how amazing this shift can be. You can read it along with me on the screen, or you can close your eyes and just soak it in. He says, It's remarkable what happens when people don't feel like they have to choose between science and Christianity. It's remarkable what happens when a high school student realizes the creation story is not the make or break for her faith. It's remarkable what happens when you give skeptics the benefit of the doubt. After all, we all have doubts. It's remarkable what happens when you allow people to discover they are sinners rather than accusing them of it. It's remarkable what happens when thoughtful Christians who for years harbored secret doubts and questions discover that the foundation of their faith is not an inerrant text or non-contradicting gospels. It's remarkable what happens when a college freshman discover that the violence and unsubstantiated historical references in the Old Testament don't undermine the message of Jesus. It's remarkable what happens when a biology major discovers his Christian faith doesn't teeter on the brink of irrelevance based on how long it took the universe to form. It's remarkable what happens when thoughtful, educated, skeptical men and women are invited to embrace the message of Jesus without having to believe a man put two of every kind of animal on a boat after which God flooded the whole world and killed everybody but that man and his family. The gospel is powerful especially the unencumbered gospel. Let's pray. God, thank you for the truth of your capital W word this morning, the truth of the person of Jesus and his work here on earth and on the cross and rising from the grave. Thank you for the truth of your lowercase word this morning the Bible that tells us about this person, that tells us about you in the flesh, that points us to him. Pray that we would stop asking the Bible to be something it's not. Pray that we would stop defending every verse from Genesis to Revelation like it's the foundation of our faith because it is not. Help us to embrace the risen Jesus, our living hope, as the central peace, the only peace that matters.
of our faith. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.